everybody has secrets. And most people at some point have someone in their life that they share these secrets with. It could be a parent, a best friend, a lover. But what happens when that special confidant becomes estranged? Can you trust them to keep your secrets? Should you? John F. Kennedy would be forced to face this dilemma. And he will learn. Two can keep a secret when one of you is dead. You're listening to Conspiracy Season 1, JFK. What will you believe? This is Episode 4 of Fallen Star. If you haven't already, go back and start with Episode 1. It's all connected. If you are enjoying Conspiracy JFK, please make sure you rate it and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find the show notes and all the documents for the series on auroraborisinc.com. That's O-U-R-O-B-O-R-O-S-I-N-K.com. Kennedy's June 1961 National Security Memorandum to CIA Director Doles had not yielded any substantive information and unknown to Kennedy, his memorandum alerted the Majestic 12 group to the danger posed by Kennedy's inquiries. With Majestic shutting down Kennedy's inquiries, he had to find different sources to get the information he was seeking. And there were a few ways for him to get it. The most direct way was for him to visit military bases. As I mentioned in Episode 2, now that the CIA ran Area 51 and S-4, he couldn't just show up and gain access, but he could do that on military bases. Area 51 and its two facilities at Groom Lake and Papoose Lake were part of the black world of covert projects. This meant that officials in the white world of conventional politics were denied access to maintain plausible deniability. That way, if any covert operation was exposed or ran afoul, president could plausibly deny knowledge and responsibility, or that was the official reason. There are a few documents and some whistleblower testimonies that make the claim that President Kennedy traveled to remote military locations to view retrieved extraterrestrial vehicles and bodies. The second way Kennedy gained access to the information he wanted was through the Attorney General, Robert Kennedy, his brother. It had long been known that Robert Kennedy had an interest in UFOs and personally wrote letters to constituents about them. Commenting on various letters written by Robert Kennedy on the UFO subject, Grant Cameron writes, These letters, recovered mostly from the Kennedy Outer Space Files, do indeed show an interest by Robert Kennedy in the UFO story as it was being portrayed in the media in the mid-1960s. And Kennedy wrote, I am keeping myself abreast of information developed on this subject. In 1997, it emerged that Robert had in fact received multiple briefings on classified UFO files and extraterrestrial life. Lieutenant Colonel Philip Corso served as head of the U.S. Army's Foreign Technology Desk from 1961 to 1963, and between 1953 and 1957, he served on multiple National Security Council committees during the Eisenhower administration. Interviewed shortly before his death in 1998, Corso revealed for the first time 
that Bobby Kennedy contacted him because of his knowledge of highly classified national security information. Corso claimed that he personally briefed Robert Kennedy on several occasions about a crashed UFO that was extraterrestrial in origin and whose technology was secretly being reverse engineered. In an interview recorded on video, Corso said, I discussed this very thoroughly with Bobby Kennedy, the Attorney General, President's brother. He knew about flying saucers. I talked to him about it. I used to meet him when he was Attorney General, right in his office. What went to Bobby went to the President. What is not well known is that Corso had previously served as General Trudeau's military liaison to the Psychological Strategy Board and its successor, the Operations Coordinating Board. Most of these organizations specialized in psychological warfare operations and were integral to the MJ-12's covert programs that involved extraterrestrial life and technology. If Corso is to be believed, then President Kennedy was able to receive information from Robert through Corso on how the UFO extraterrestrial issue was being handled by the CIA and MJ-12 group. In his book, Need to Know, Timothy Good cites a military source that claims Kennedy was taken to see the alien bodies from Roswell. Good wrote, Around 1961-1962, President Kennedy expressed a wish to see alien bodies associated with an alien crash site. He had obviously been informed of their existence and wished to see for himself the evidence. According to information received, the alien bodies were taken to Florida when Kenny went to see them at a medical facility. We find support for this claim from a leak, unconfirmed top-secret CIA wiretap summary of conversations involving Marilyn Monroe and the Kennedy brothers. I will discuss this wiretap later in the episode. We do have confirmation that President Kennedy visited the three contiguous military facilities at White Sands Missile Range, located in Fort Bliss and the Holloman Air Force Base on June 6, 1963. If you remember, White Sands was the main site for Operation Paperclip, and was also one of the sites that part of the Roswell UFO wreckage had been taken. If he was looking for information involving the Roswell incident or advanced technologies being developed, those bases were a great place to start. One of the most intriguing claims involving Kennedy's knowledge about UFOs and extraterrestrials comes from George Adomsky, a controversial figure. Adomsky's previous claims of having filmed flying saucers and meeting with their human-looking extraterrestrial occupants have long been controversial despite supporting photographic, film, and eyewitness testimonies. Adomsky's famous Desert Center meeting with an extraterrestrial emerging from a scout ship on November 20, 1952, was seen by six witnesses who signed affidavits confirming Adomsky's version of events. Adomsky also alleges to have met privately with President Kennedy in late 1961 and again in 1962. He claims that during his first visit, he passed on a message from his extraterrestrial contacts about a future world crisis thought to be the October 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. What are we to make of this claim? Is Adomsky credible? Well, Desmond Leslie, a former Royal Air Force pilot, an Irish lord, and cousin to Winston Churchill, investigated Adomsky's claims and found them to be credible. 
Adonsky's claim of having an ordinance pass, which gave him access to U.S. military facilities, was confirmed by William Sherwood, who at the time worked at Eastman Kodak as an optical physicist, and also Madeline Rodeffer, who worked as a personal secretary for the U.S. Air Force. If true, and if Adomsky regularly briefed the Pentagon, this would strengthen his claim that he secretly met with President Kennedy around October 1961 to deliver that special message. If the message was about the Cuban Missile Crisis, could the contents of the message have helped Kennedy develop the right strategy for dealing with the conflict that could easily have escalated into a third world war? The extraterrestrial message apparently also contained an invitation for Kennedy to meet with them in California, and according to Adomsky, President Kennedy accepted the invitation. Lou Zinstag, the niece of eminent Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung, has gone on record and gives this account as to what she was told by Adomsky, according to Kennedy's alleged meeting with extraterrestrials. Quote, I still remember this. He told me that he had been entrusted with a written invitation for President Kennedy to visit one of the space people's huge motherships at a secret airbase in Desert Hot Springs, California. In order to keep this visit absolutely secret, Abdomsky was to take the invitation directly to the White House through a side door. Abdomsky later learned that Kennedy had spent several hours at the airbase after having canceled an important trip to New York, and that he had a long talk with the ship's crew but he had not been invited for a flight, end quote. If Kennedy actually traveled to a secret meeting with human-looking extraterrestrials, no one other than Adomsky has come forward to say it happened. We do surprisingly find some confirmation for the claims that Kennedy viewed UFO wreckage material and possibly alien bodies at military bases from his controversial relationship with Marilyn Monroe, and this information could very well have led to her death. A close friend and confidant of Marilyn Monroe was the actor Peter Lawford. Lawford was married to Kennedy's younger sister Pat from 1954 to 1966, and according to Lawford's third wife, Deborah Gould, Kennedy first met Monroe during the 1960 presidential campaign. Rachel Bell, who conducted an investigation of Monroe's death for Court TV, describes how the Kennedy brothers met and became involved with Monroe. That same year, 1960, Marilyn became involved in a highly publicized but short-lived affair with Frank Sinatra. She also befriended several high-profile personalities during that time, including Peter Lawford, his wife Pat Kennedy, and Pat Newcomb, who became her best friend. The entire group would often spend time together, frequently attending gatherings or large parties at the Lawford and Kennedy homes. The guests were the who's who of Hollywood, and at times high government officials would attend, including Robert Kennedy and his brother, then President John Kennedy. According to Tim Coates' Marilyn Monroe, the FBI files, it was during these parties that Marilyn and the Kennedy brothers became acquainted. Marilyn was often seen dancing or in intimate conversation at private parties with Bobby or John, and according to her closest friends, her heart belonged to the elder brother, John. Rumors would run wild that JFK and Monroe were secretly having an affair, and one of Kennedy's advisors would confirm that the rumors were true. On one occasion, they were caught by this former advisor, Peter Summers, who saw them come out of a bathroom together. Marilyn was wearing just a towel. Summers was quoted as saying, 
She had clearly been in there, in the shower, with him, it was obvious, but neither of them seemed worried about it. Another source, Terry Moore, would explain to Rachel Bell how Monroe would talk about her hopes of becoming the First Lady, claiming, John spoke frequently to Marilyn on the phone during the beginning to mid-1962. He even gave her a private number so that she could reach him through the Justice Department. Marilyn's hope for a future with the president began to soar during this time, and she believed that he would someday divorce Jackie Kennedy and marry her. Marilyn naively imagined herself as a future first lady. The reality of U.S. politics at the time meant that Kennedy could never hope to be re-elected if he divorced Jackie, and then openly continued his relationship with Monroe. This meant he would have to end the relationship to protect both his presidency and his marriage. So that's what Kennedy did. He pulled away and hoped to quietly end things. But this would cause more problems and turned out to be quite dangerous for the president. Bell explained how dangerous Monroe could be. What allegedly became so troublesome was Marilyn's supposed rage at JFK's rejection of her and the fear that she was able to strike in both brothers. Donald Wolf sums it up, quote, Marilyn Monroe was in a position to bring down the presidency, end quote. She was cognizant of Jack Kennedy's marital infidelities and other private matters. She had his notes and letters and was privy to Kennedy's involvement with Sam Giancana. That the Kennedy brothers had discussed national security matters with the film star added to an astonishing array of indiscretions. This would signify that the president had shared sensitive material with Monroe, and that gave the scorned woman ammunition. According to Dr. Donald Burleson, Kennedy was read the riot act by FBI Director Hoover over Monroe being a security risk. A few days after the birthday bash, the famous event where Monroe sang happy birthday to JFK, Hoover had a conference with Kennedy. It appears that Hoover laid the law down to JFK about the president having become a security risk due to his intimate association with Marilyn Monroe, who was known to be keeping company with a number of, quote, left-wing people. Hoover seems to have prevailed because JFK immediately had Monroe's private line to the White House disconnected. When JFK needed to quietly gain information about the UFO situation, he turned to the Attorney General, Robert Kennedy, his brother. And to help him discreetly silence Monroe, JFK would once again seek his brother's help. According to Robert Slatzer, Robert became the emissary to sue the fury of a woman scorned. Because of Robert's involvement, rumors surfaced, claiming that he also had begun having an affair with Monroe. But regarding the alleged relationship between Robert Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe, William Sullivan, Hoover's deputy director at the FBI, claims there is no evidence that any sexual encounter ever happened. In his autobiography, The Bureau, My 30 Years, and Hoover's FBI, he writes, Although Hoover was desperately trying to catch Bobby Kennedy red-handed at anything, he never did. Kennedy was almost a Puritan. We used to watch him at parties where he would order one glass of scotch and still be sipping from the same glass two hours later. The stories about Bobby Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe were just stories. The original story was invented by a so-called journalist, a right-wing zealot, who had a history of spinning wild yarns. It spread like wildfire, of course, and J. Edgar Hoover was right there, gleefully fanning the flames. 
The glaring question is, how did Monroe take the breakup? Was Robert able to calm the flames? As stated by researchers and her friends, Robert failed, and may have actually made things worse. According to Burleson, in the end, Marilyn felt rejected by both Kennedy brothers, and with good reason. Like JFK, Bobby made himself inaccessible to Marilyn by phone. The Kennedys had dropped her, distanced themselves from her. She was furious with them, and during the final two or three days of her life, she began telling close friends that she might just hold a news conference and tell all. In a 1993 documentary, one of Monroe's former lovers and husband for a day, Robert Slatzer, claimed that two days before her death, Monroe told him, If I don't hear from Bobby Kennedy before the end of the weekend, I'm going to call a press conference and blow the lid off this whole thing. I'm going to tell about my relationship with both Kennedy brothers. Everybody has been calling, trying to get the story. Walter Winchell, Kilgallen, and it's clear to me now that the Kennedys got what they wanted out of me and then moved on. Along with Monroe's threats to go public, it has also been alleged by a number of Monroe's close friends that at the advice of her doctor, she kept a personal diary. In it, she recorded many details of her activities, most noteworthy being her meetings with the Kennedy brothers. If true, this diary would obviously be a national security risk. But the diary's existence has been called into question since it was allegedly never found after her death. Donald Wolf has done the most research in tracking down witnesses who knew or had seen Monroe's diary. Wolf claimed that in addition to Slatzer, another of Monroe's friends, Lionel Grandison, had seen the diary and even looked through its contents. Another witness was former Los Angeles Police Department intelligence officer Mike Rothmiller. In an interview with Wolf, Rothmiller claimed that in 1978 he saw the Marilyn Monroe file, which included a copy of her diary, which he, he examined. Quote, it was more like a journal. The majority of the entries were notes about conversations Marilyn Monroe had with John F. Kennedy and Robert Kennedy. The subject matter ranged from Russia and Cuba to the Mafia and Sinatra. I remember she referred to Castro as Fidel C. End quote. Finally, Norman Jeffries, the handyman, claims that he also saw Monroe's red diary and that she kept it in her bedroom or locked in a filing cabinet in the guest cottage. After Monroe's death, his mother-in-law, Eunice Murray, who was the housekeeper, supposedly handed the diary over to the coroner's office. The diary's existence and its contents could bring an end to the Kennedy administration. It creates a strong motive for Robert Kennedy to get his hands on it before Monroe went public, and for him to see Monroe one last time to ensure her silence. In the early morning of August 5, 1962, Monroe would be found dead in her bedroom. Toxicology reports would conclude that she died from acute barbiturate poisoning, with the coroner ruling her death a probable suicide. But was it suicide, or could it have been murder? According to Rachel Bell, on the night of Monroe's death, there were some witnesses, including a cop, who placed Robert Kennedy near the scene that night. Greg Bryan also reports that a number of police and an FBI informant saw Robert Kennedy in Los Angeles the night of Monroe's death. Close friends of RFK say that he was in San Francisco that day with his wife and kids to visit a group of friends on a ranch in Santa Cruz Mountains. 
They say he couldn't have been in Los Angeles at the time he was reported to have been there. But memory can be deceptive. When a security risk is imminent, the Attorney General may very well find a way to get there at all costs. Also, when several police officers, plus an FBI informant, claim to have seen Robert Kennedy in LA during the early evening, it moves the possibility of him being there a tad beyond half-truth. According to Burleson, audio surveillance captured Robert Kennedy's voice in the late afternoon having an argument with Monroe. Kennedy was accompanied by his brother-in-law, Peter Lawford, and was looking for something. Burleson's description of the audio goes like this. Where is it? Where the F is it? My family must have it. We'll make any arrangements you want. We'll pay for it. In retrospect, it's obvious that Bobby was looking for Marilyn's diary. 20 years after Monroe's death, her housekeeper Eunice Murray, the same one who turned over the diary to the coroner's office, came forward to allege that Robert Kennedy had been there the day of her death. This admission came at the end of an interview with Anthony Summers for a BBC documentary. Summers says this, As the camera crew were starting to clear up, she said suddenly, Why at my age do I still have to cover up this thing? I asked her what she meant, and then she astonished us by admitting that Robert Kennedy was indeed at Marilyn's house the day she died and that a doctor and an ambulance had come while she was still alive. Mrs. Murray was then asked about the Kennedy-Monroe relationship. Murray said, Well, over a period of time, I was not at all surprised that the Kennedys were a very important part of Marilyn's life, and uh, so that I was just a... I wasn't included in this information, but I was a witness to what was happening. Summers would go on to question her, saying, And you believe that he... Bobby was there that day? Murray. At Marilyn's house? Yes. Murray. Oh, sure. Summers. That afternoon? Yes. Summers. And you think that is the reason she was so upset? Murray. Yes, and it became so sticky that the protectors of Robert Kennedy, you know, had to step in and protect him? When Summers asked Murray why she hadn't told the truth to the police... In 1962, she responded, I told whatever I thought was good to tell. In 1992, Norman Jeffries, Murray's son-in-law, the handyman, was tracked down by Donald Wolfe. Jeffries had never given a statement about the night of Monroe's death. Now confined to a wheelchair and terminally ill, Jeffries agreed to be interviewed, saying, I guess they can very well electrocute me in a wheelchair. Jeffries disclosed that he never left the proximity of the Monroe residence on that horrible day. He had remained with his mother-in-law the entire day from the time he arrived on Saturday at 8 o'clock that morning until he departed Sunday morning at approximately 7.30. He had been present during all events that took place. He recalled that between 9.30 and 10 p.m., Robert Kennedy, accompanied by two men, appeared at the door. They ordered Jeffries and Murray from the house. Quote, we were told to leave. I mean, they made it clear we were to be gone. We went to a neighbor's house. I had no idea what was going on. I mean, this was the Attorney General of the United States. I didn't know who the two men were with him. And at about 10.30, Murray and Jeffrey saw Bobby and the two men leave. Jeffrey stated that he and Murray then ventured back to Maryland's. As they entered the open gates and crossed the courtyard toward the kitchen door, they heard the dog barking from the guest cottage where the light was on and the door was standing open. 
When they entered the cottage, they discovered Marilyn, unclothed, lying across the daybed. He said it didn't look like she was breathing and her color was awful, like she was dead. Quote, I was there in the living room with Eunice when Marilyn died, and after that, all hell broke loose, Jeffrey stated. He was there when Bobby Kennedy and Peter Lawford arrived on Saturday morning. He was there when the ambulance arrived on Saturday night. He was there when Dr. Greenson arrived and Marilyn died in the guest cottage. He was there in the early hours of Sunday morning when Monroe's body was moved to the bedroom. Norman Jeffries had been a key witness and the police had never questioned him. Wolf concluded that Marilyn's death was premeditated murder by stating, Did they intend to murder Marilyn Monroe? Or was the intent to subdue her with the hot shot if she caused any problems while they broke into her filing cabinet and the guest cottage took the notes, letters, and legal documents and searched for the book of secrets? The evidence points to premeditated homicide. In the presence of Bobby Kennedy, she was injected with enough barbiturate to kill 15 people. After learning about some of the events that occurred between Monroe and JFK and what those close to her had to say, After he ended their affair, I'm left with a few questions. If Monroe wanted to hold a press conference, what was it that she wanted to reveal? If she only wanted to reveal to the public the truth about their affair, would this have really been that explosive of a revelation? I'm not convinced. From what I gather, the affair was hardly the secret as one would have you believe. What do we make of this red diary? What was in it? What had Monroe witnessed or discussed with the Kennedy brothers that would be considered a security risk? And finally, is any of this information worth killing a well-known Hollywood star and public figure and risk the Kennedys being implicated? If Kennedy had confided in Monroe and revealed to her the truth about UFOs and that he had direct confirmation of their existence, would this be enough of a security risk worthy of murder? In 1994, an alleged CIA document was released. The document is a summary of a series of wiretapped conversations between reporter Dorothy Kilgallen and Howard Rothberg, and between Monroe and Robert Kennedy. This is the transcript of the wiretap summary. 1. Rothberg discussed the apparent comeback of subject with Kilgallen and the breakup with the Kennedys. Rothberg told Kilgallen that she was attending Hollywood parties hosted by the, quote, inner circle among Hollywood's elite and was becoming the talk of the town again. Rothberg indicated in so many words that she had secrets to tell, no doubt arising from her tryst with the president and the attorney general. One such secret mentions the visit by the president at a secret airbase for the purpose of inspecting things from outer space. Kilgallen replied that she knew what might be the source of the visit. In the mid-50s, Kilgallen learned of a secret effort by the U.S. and U.K. governments to identify the origins of crashed spacecraft and dead bodies from a British government official. Kilgallen believed the story may have come from the New York story in the late 40s. Kilgallen said that if the story is true, it would cause terrible embarrassment for Jack and his plans to have NASA put men on the moon. 2. Subject repeatedly called the Attorney General and complained about the way she was being ignored by the President and his brother. 3. Subject threatened to hold a press conference and would tell all. 4. 
Subject made reference to, quote, bases in Cuba and knew of the president's plan to kill Castro. 5. Subject made reference to her diary of secrets and what the newspapers would do with such disclosures. That's the end of the transcript. The CIA wiretap refers to, quote, the visit by the president at a secret airbase for the purpose of inspecting things from outer space. We can infer from the wiretap that Kennedy was successful with his visits to military facilities to find out about extraterrestrial secrets. The crash from the late 1940s could be the famous 1947 Roswell incident we talked about in Episode 1, or another alleged crash in 1948 at Aztec. And if true, Kennedy had revealed what he'd found to Monroe. One of the most interesting things about this document is who signed it. It was signed by James Angleton. If you remember from Episode 3, Angleton was one of the main CIA counterintelligence figures of the 1960s, and the fanatical mole hunter who the Majestic 12 used to stop the leaks of any sensitive intelligence. He was also the original owner of the partially burned Majestic Assassination Directive Memo. There is another name on the wiretap that strongly points to its authenticity. Burleson used computer imaging techniques to enhance the CIA wiretap document, and found an imprint of General Shulgin next to the top-secret stamp at the top of the document. Brigadier General George Shulgin was Chief of the Air Intelligence Requirements Division of the U.S. Air Force. Even more intriguing is the imprint's reference to a little-known document known as the Intelligence Collection Memorandum that was drafted by Shulgin in October 1947. The Intelligence Collection Memorandum contains a list of the intelligence requirements in the field of flying saucer-type aircraft. This led Burleson to make this conclusion. This imprint or bleed-in, however it came to be on a CIA document about Marilyn Monroe, makes a clear connection between her murder and the question of UFO secrecy, as someone, somewhere, at some time, evidently thought it logical to archive the documents together. Burleson explains the significance of another subject that appears on the wiretap document, Project Moondust, a project that, for years, the U.S. Air Force and other government agencies denied its existence. FOIA releases finally succeeded in proving the existence of Project Moondust, revealing it first became operational in the retrieval of space debris in 1953. For example, a Department of Defense document discusses a UFO sighting and its relevance for Project Moondust. Quote, This sighting demonstrates a high level of local interest in the subject of UFOs and the future reporting which could be valuable in pursuit of Project Moondust. Project Moondust, as Burleson points out in his book, has existed at least since 1953 for the purpose of recovering debris from fallen space vehicles, certainly to include UFO crash debris. An intriguing and problematic project line certainly defined on a CIA document about Marilyn Monroe. The fact that Project Moondust is a confirmed former operational project helps authenticate the CIA Monroe wiretap. I find the fact that the CIA was surveilling Monroe and a reporter that she was close to startling. What was the motivation? I find it hard to believe that JFK himself would have made such a request. 
If you remember in the last episode, I discussed a series of directives sent from the then-current CIA director, Alan Doles, to other members of the Majestic 12, specifically MJ-2 through MJ-7, and he asked for their response by October 1961. In these directives, Doles wrote, As you must know, Lancer, Kennedy's Secret Service codename, has made some inquiries regarding our activities, which we cannot allow. Please submit your views no later than October. Your action to this matter is critical to the continuance of the group. Kennedy and the Majestic Group had been in a struggle over information about UFOs and extraterrestrial life, and Majestic clearly felt threatened and began making preemptive moves against the president. With this in mind, the CIA wiretapping becomes obvious. The CIA was monitoring Kennedy to see what he was disclosing to others, especially Monroe, knowing that he was in a romantic relationship with her. And I have no doubt they were also trying to collect any information that they could use against the president to help them control and limit his actions. Once it became known that Monroe had knowledge of the UFO situation, and that she had been keeping these secrets in a diary, coupled with the threat of going public, she became a liability. Responsibility fell to Robert Kennedy to stop her. In desperation, he visited her twice on the day of her death. On the first occasion, traveling with Peter Lawford. Robert Kennedy failed to persuade Monroe to abandon her plan and turn over the diary. So later that night, Kennedy went back with the doctor and another agent. The plan was to retrieve the diary and to silence Monroe. I think it's highly unlikely that Robert Kennedy would have been physically present at Monroe's house if the plan was to search her premises and murder her as claimed by Donald Wolfe. The more plausible scenario is that Kennedy thought that Monroe would be medicated by one of the agents while he and the other searched Monroe's house. The agent or doctor administering the medication either botched the dosage or, unknown to Kennedy, had been instructed to administer the lethal dosage. If the latter scenario is closer to the truth, then it is likely that the CIA counterintelligence surveillance team that was monitoring Monroe arranged for one of its agents to infiltrate the Los Angeles police intelligence team that had been assisting Kennedy. The premeditated murder would enable the CIA's counterintelligence division to make it look as though Kennedy was involved in a botched attempt to silence Monroe. Angleton could use Monroe's death and Kennedy's involvement as future leverage against the Attorney General. We may never know the truth of the matter, but we can conclude that anyone close enough to Kennedy to share in his intimate thoughts was at risk to becoming another victim in the UFO cover-up. Next time on Conspiracy. We will take a look at the 12 members of Majestic during the Kennedy administration. And Kennedy tries to thaw the ice by reaching out to his Cold War enemy and attempting to cooperate with the USSR on space and UFOs. This is an Aurora Boris Inc. production.